a 13-month-old little boy named Darius Sweet mm. had died under suspicious circumstances. Tell me that the jury was able to put this together. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and founder of XG Productions. And with me today in the studio is... Hi everybody, it's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Hi Jim. How are you, Francie? I'm good. It's nice to be actually face-to-face in the studio together. Well, I'm glad you think so. Thank you. <laughs> nice. So you know, nice. our listeners already think that you don't like me, so don't play in. Oh, that. stop. They can <laughs> hear our smiles. Anyway, Francie, today I want to interview you. Uh-uh. You just don't get enough time to speak, do you? <laughs> well. <laughs> so why don't we give you an opportunity? Francie, do you have a case in mind for today? I do. I have a very, very difficult case that happened to me, yes. Well, you're giving away way too much, but whatever. When in your career were you when this case came in? This was really early in my career. I was a baby assistant DA. I had been an assistant DA for just three years when this case came in. Mm. And is there anything in particular you were doing when this case came in? I was working in the what's called the Doherty County District Attorney's Office. That's located in Albany, Georgia. That's in South Georgia, or as everyone in Georgia might refer to it, below the Nat Line. Below the what line? The Nat line. Like you know, G-N-A-T line? Yeah, like the little bugs. There's no gnats there or there are gnats there? Oh, there are gnats there. So there's no gnats above there? <laughs> well, not as many. And they don't invade you like some sort of conquering force like they do in South Georgia. Well, it's great that we're in South California now. And I don't think I've ever seen a gnat here. No, I'm pretty sure you're right. It's pretty nice. It's gnat free. Gnat free. Okay, great. So now that we got that settled about the gnat line, what were you doing specifically on that day? I was sitting at my desk when the district attorney, Ken Hodges, who, by the way, has just been elected to the Georgia Court of Appeals. Ken Hodges was the district attorney at the time. And he came into my office and he brought me a case file. And it was something that had just recently happened. And he wanted me to reach out to the police officers and detectives right away to get involved early in the investigation. Mm. 
And so this was something that was breaking news then. It was. And is that the first time this has happened or is this a regular event for you? No, I mean, I had only been in that office for less than a year. And so it was pretty unusual for this to happen. And what exactly happened? Well, I was part of the child death investigation team at that Mm. point. I had done that at both my district attorney's offices, my first in Columbus and this one in Albany. And so Ken brought me this case as part of my duties as a member of the child death investigation team because there had been a suspicious death. Wow. Doesn't sound like this is going to be a happy case. This is actually a really sad case, and it was the first time I ever had to handle a case like this. And what did you do? Well, the first thing I did was read the uh, initial police report that had been done in the case and reached out to the detective. And I read that a 13-month-old little boy named Darius Sweet Mm. had died under suspicious circumstances. Really? What happens in a case like that? I mean, when a child dies at home, I suppose? It was at home. And generally speaking, when a child dies in Georgia, and I'm sure other states, there are specific protocols in place. That's why I was part of the child death investigation team. The point is to have special training and to have protocols in place for any child death so that it can be investigated thoroughly as a potential homicide. Because unlike adults, oftentimes when a child dies suspiciously, they're not shot or stabbed or obviously murdered. So the death has to be investigated in a whole different way. So what was the first thing that the police did with respect to this death of Darius? Well, the first thing they did happened at the hospital. So let me take you back to the start of this case. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about Darius, can you? I can. Darius Sweet was an absolutely precious 13-month-old boy. Oh, geez. And he was a twin. His twin's name was Terius. So it was Darius and Terius Sweet. Their mother's name was Shonda Sweet. She was a very hardworking woman, single mother, until she started dating the man who was not the children's father, a man named Tony Whitaker. She started dating Tony Whitaker, and very quickly, Tony moved in. And Shonda was the breadwinner of the family. Shonda was the one who was taking care of everything. She worked. Sometimes she didn't have a job, so she was out looking for work. And oftentimes she would leave her twins, Darius and Terius, with her boyfriend, Mm. Tony Whitaker, while she went out and tried to earn money for the family so she could support all four of them. This case is already making me sick to my stomach. But okay, so Darius, obviously 13 months old. Yeah, a baby. A baby, totally, totally helpless. Totally, totally helpless. So Shonda Sweet one day is has got to go out and look for a job. A friend is going to drive her to various places, including all the way to Florida to try to find work, which isn't that far actually from the Albany uh, jurisdiction. It's an hour or two. So she was really searching far and wide for ways to support her family. So she left Darius and Darius with Tony Whitaker. The children were getting over a bad cold, Mm. so they were a little fussy and still a little bit congested, but fine, clean, fed, and bathed when she left that morning. And how long was she gone? All day. She was gone uh, till early evening trying to look for a job with her friend, and Whitaker was alone with the children all day long. The first thing that anyone knows that anything is wrong with the children is a phone call made by Whitaker to his godmother, 
he calls her and says, he can't wake up Darius and will she come over? Mm. So she comes over and brings her husband and daughter. They're unrelated by blood, but she is Whitaker's godmother. She hears something in his voice. And so she comes over. When she arrives, Whitaker is in the main part of the house, the family or living room, and the twins are nowhere to be seen. Mm -hmm. Whitaker tells her that Darius is in the bedroom and there's something wrong with him, but he's not in the bedroom. <sighs> so she goes into the bedroom and she finds Darius asleep on the bed and Darius face down on a corner of the bed. She turns the child over and notices that his lips are blue and he does not appear to be breathing. Good Lord. And how long had this been going on? No one knows. And Whitaker didn't say much. The godmother's daughter tries to perform CPR on Darius to revive him at the same time as the godmother's husband calls 911, which our listeners will have already probably noted. Whitaker did, did not, not do. Right. That's right. So 911 is called. They arrive and they start working on the child. And I'll tell you later uh, during the trial portion of this what the EMT said about the scene. But they do everything they know how to do to try to revive Darius. And they rush him to the hospital, which is Phoebe Putney Hospital, which is a very well-respected regional hospital there in Albany. And they also try to save his life. They are unsuccessful and Darius dies, mm. leaving Darius without his twin for life. Wow. And Shonda without her son. When did Shonda find out about all this? As Shonda was coming home from her job hunt, she got a call from the police and they told her to meet them at Phoebe Putney Hospital, that there was something wrong. And until she got to the hospital, she didn't know. And when she got there, they had to tell her that her 13-month-old baby was dead. Yeah. All right. So what happens when you first arrive in this case? Well, when I arrive in the case, the police had already interviewed everyone. This is at the hospital? Yes. Or, okay. It's first at the hospital, right? Okay. So they interview Shonda Sweet. They interview Tony Whitaker. And they notice some very strange inconsistencies in his story, and especially in the story that his godmother tells, which is that all he tells her when she arrives at the house to help Darius is that he heard a loud noise and he went into the bedroom and Darius was face down on the bed, not breathing. And he called her and she comes and she notices him face down on the bed, not breathing. Mm. But when the police question Whitaker about what happened, now he tells a new story that that loud noise was actually Darius falling off the bed. And that when he went into the room, Darius had fallen off the bed and he picks him up and he's crying and he feeds him a bottle, mm -hmm. which Darius takes. And then Darius vomits from his nose and his mouth. And so Whitaker cleans him up and puts him back on the bed, face up next to his twin. So this is a very different story than the one that he had told the godmother. So police are immediately suspicious. Well, I would be immediately suspicious based on the story that the godmother tells that a, a loud noise occurred, and he was lying face down on the bed. He's on the bed. Where's the loud noise from? But she finds him face down on the bed and not breathing. Why didn't Darius get turned over? Why is Darius still face into the bed? Exactly. All suspicious circumstances that trigger the child death investigation protocols. Yeah. And one of the most important things in a case like this is to 
test the story of the person who's with the child when something terrible occurs. And so the police did everything right in this case, which I give the Albany Police Department so much credit because they did not see very many suspicious child deaths. Mm. It's not a very big jurisdiction. They didn't have a lot of experience with it, but they went immediately to the scene after talking to everybody and took out the most important tool in this entire case. And what was that? A tape measure. Measuring the distance between the bed and a dresser that was next to the bed and between the bed and the floor. Mm. Because that would be key evidence later. Right. And what was the floor made out of? It was a hardwood floor. Okay. Smooth, though. It was a smooth, hardwood floor. And was the bed tucked into a corner so that it was surrounded by walls on three sides or something? No, there was only a wall in the back. So on one side, there was a fairly large open space toward the door. And on the other side, a a foot or two away was the dresser. Okay. And so... There's no way that a baby could have fallen, hit their head on a wall, and landed face down on the bed. Absolutely not. Impossible. Okay. So the other thing that the police noted at the hospital, which is part of the case, is what the EMTs and doctors were telling them looked like suspicious injuries, Mm. and specifically a very large knot on the back of the child's head, which, if you think about it from a common sense standpoint... A child who falls out of bed and lands on the back of his head, he might have a knot on his head, maybe. At least that's what most people might think. Yeah. But given the experience of uh, child death investigations, everyone is suspicious when a child that age falls, supposedly, and there's an explanation that doesn't make a lot of sense, but could be real. So they go out and they measure the scene and they start talking to all the witnesses and they interview everyone. What else did Mr. Whitaker say in his statement? Whitaker didn't say very much. Whitaker agreed that Shonda Sweet was out of the house all day long and that when she left, Darius and Terius were fine, fed and sleeping. So this was key evidence later also, because of course, in a suspicious child death, the police have to figure out who was with the child when injuries occurred that might have led to the child's death. Yeah, and also get a baseline for how the kids were cared for. That's right. So in this case, right from the beginning, everyone agrees the children were fine when Shonda left and that Whitaker was the only person with them the rest of the day until the godmother arrived. Hmm. So it was actually a pretty... um, simple investigation in a sense, in that there are only a few people to talk to because there's only a few people involved. You've got medical personnel, EMTs, the godmother and her family, and Whitaker and Shonda. And that's really it, other than measuring the scene and then who becomes the most important witness, the medical examiner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the twins, obviously pre-verbal, can't describe what happened. And the only other person is the suspect. That's right. So I get the case, and this is the stage that it's in. The autopsy hasn't been performed yet. So um, I have the ability to go and watch the autopsy if I want to, which I did not. I just have to admit it. I was going to ask you, did you see the body before the autopsy? I did not. I saw photographs. Mm. Uh, I spent, oh gosh, days with the medical examiner, but not not live. I did not see the autopsy live. I have to say... uh, that's never been something that I wanted to do in my career. It's horrific. No. And it can, you can never get it out of your mind. Well, no. And that's one of the things that haunts me about this case is the first image, the first picture I ever saw 
of Darius Sweet was a photograph taken by the medical examiner's office. And it was of Darius lying on the cold steel autopsy table before the autopsy begins. 13 months old. 13 months old. And he looks like he's sleeping. That's what makes these cases so incredibly difficult and different from adult homicide investigations. Because when it comes to suspicious deaths and what may end up being a murder case, the child doesn't look injured. It's very hard to see a child laying on an autopsy table like that with no visible injuries, at least at first. Right. And it's a very difficult thing in general to think about a child that young being so vulnerable and so helpless and that something horrible happened to them and ended up killing them. It is. So the medical examiner does his work, and he does a very careful study and documentation of little Darius to determine whether or not he has any suspicious injuries. And so it's going to be the medical examiner who's going to tell me whether or not Tony Whitaker's story of the child falling and being killed from a fall from a bed makes sense. Mm -hmm. So how soon after the death was the autopsy performed? It was almost immediate. Like within hours? Yeah, within, I can't remember whether it was the same day or the next day, but it was okay. definitely no later than the next day and after when, the child died. And when you're waiting for results, I mean, what did you do? What was going through your mind? At that point, I was talking quite a bit to the police department about their thoughts about Whitaker's statements, because, you know, I only had a preliminary police report at that point. So I wanted to know everything about everyone had said. The police are still transcribing everything. They're still putting everything in their reports. They're still talking to the eyewitnesses and trying to find and get the names of people like the EMTs on the scene. Because when it comes to a suspicious death, everything that happened in the last hours and minutes of the child's life are going to be critical pieces of evidence. So all of that is being gathered, and I'm talking to the police and to the EMTs and to Shonda Sweet about the case. And of course, the mother is, a parent is almost always a suspect, but we knew very quickly in this case that she could not be responsible for what happened to Darius because he was fine when she left. And she was gone the entire day when something happened, obviously. That's right. And we had to document that. So we, the police had to gather things like gas receipts and talk to her friend and verify her alibi. We didn't just take it right. from the word of Whitaker or the word of Shonda Sweet that that's what was going on. We verified it. We proved that she literally had an alibi that whole day. All right. And so what was the next investigative event that happened? Well, it was the autopsy and my uh, conversation with the medical examiner about his findings, which in his mind were unequivocal. The child was murdered. And you said specifically? Specifically, the medical examiner said that the child died from blunt force trauma and a massive skull fracture. Really? That could not be explained by a fall from the height of the bed that the police had documented, which was around three feet. So, was Darius walking at that time? No. Neither child was able to walk yet. So then probably unlikely that that child could have stood up and fallen from a standing position on the bed. That's right. That, and that was the evidence that we had from Shonda and others who knew the child. And so 
now I know that the medical examiner has given me information that leads me to a very comfortable belief that Darius Sweet has been murdered by Tony Whitaker. And so it's time to go to the grand jury and it's time to bring charges and go to trial. So just the facts of the case, do they indicate how that traumatic injury to the brain occurred? They do. And that becomes the key testimony at the trial. So after I indicted Tony Whitaker for what's called felony murder in Georgia, which just means um, a death occurs in the commission of a felony, which in this case was cruelty to children, Mm. he elects to go to trial. He maintains his innocence. He said he didn't do it, that the child fell, and that he was not responsible for Darius's death. So what this is going to become is simply a case about the medical examiner's evidence. And so my job as the prosecutor was to build what I thought was the strongest case and present a case to the jury that would convince them that the child didn't die from a fall. And remember, this was 1999. And so there was no CSI. There weren't a bunch of murder cases on TV. This was a time when I felt that it was always in child abuse and child sexual abuse and child physical abuse cases was so much harder to prove to a jury that an injury was purposefully inflicted. They just didn't want to believe it. And you look at the sweet pictures that Shonda provided of Darius and Terius in life together. They're always snuggled up together in bed. They're playing together. They're holding Mm. hands. Everything they're doing, they're doing together. And it was agonizing to put together this case. But I had to do it at least in an attempt, I had to try to be dispassionate and put together a strong case that I thought would make the jury believe that the child was murdered and that the man sitting in the dock was the one who did it. And so how did you put that evidence in? What did you have? Well, I really didn't have anything except Whitaker's inconsistent statements, the measurements of the bed and the story that he had given, the behavior of Whitaker when the EMTs arrived, and of course, the medical examiner, and the autopsy itself. Now, one of the difficult things in a trial like this is that judges rarely let you put in autopsy photos. They are incredibly gruesome. And in this case, the only photographs from the autopsy the judge would allow me to put in were the pictures of Darius laying on that cold steel table before the autopsy started, the photographs of the child's back all the way from his buttocks to his head, once they shaved his hair off. Mm-hmm. And that was it. The photogra- what? What? Yeah, the autopsy photographs of the child's skull and the injuries to his head, the judge would not let me put into evidence. Why? Because the judge decided they were more prejudicial than probative. That How is, is that possible, would- though? That's ridiculous. I've done it all the time. Agreed. Agreed. But because it was a child and because the injuries were so gruesome, and and I apologize in advance to our listeners, but if you don't know, you probably already do from shows like Criminal Mind and from TV, one of the things they do in an autopsy to determine skull fractures and injuries to a skull is they have to remove the skin and you have to have photographs of the skull. And these are images that I still get emotional when I think about because these are images that live in my mind. And yeah. and all these years later, they live they in my haunt you. and they haunt me. And they were hideous. They were very clear, easy to see, skull fractures, a ton of blood. And, uh, it was obvious that the child had been um, struck or had struck something incredibly hard. And so that evidence is really critical. So what I did was I bought a styrofoam skull, just a plain styrofoam skull like you would put a wig on in a wig shop. 
so that, that the medical examiner could draw with red pen on the skull to display mm-hmm. for the jury the injuries that we couldn't put in through autopsy photos. Wow. And so that was the picture that as a prosecutor, I had to paint. I had to paint a picture of a murderer. I think the hardest thing, and people don't uh, know unless they've done it themselves, the hardest thing in a murder case is that the victim isn't there. I know that sounds weird, but the victim isn't there. The victim can't speak for himself. The person that the jury sees and is alive in the courtroom is the defendant. And so you really have to make sure that you paint a picture of the child and the child's life in life for the jury. And so that's what I tried to do. Well, the judge really made that much more difficult for you. No doubt. So the medical examiner testified that he believed it was a homicide and that it was massive skull fracture and brain injury. Yes. The medical examiner found certain pieces of key evidence. First, there was bruising all along Darius's back and buttocks that was fresh. The medical examiner testified they had to have happened within four to five hours of Darius's death. Was that possible to have been caused by a fall from the bed? The medical examiner didn't think so because it would have been one flat injury on a fall from a bed if the child had fallen directly on his back, which is actually unlikely. But even if he did, you wouldn't have distinct bruising that the medical examiner said looked like knuckles. Okay, so multiple individual bruises, not one large bruise across the buttocks up the back. Yes. And then there were other key bruises on the child's face, specifically on his forehead. The medical examiner testified that it looked like one of two things. Either grip marks where someone had gripped the child's forehead and he used the skull, that styrofoam skull that I had, he used that skull to show the jury the finger or knuckle marks on the front of the child's face on his forehead where either the child, in his opinion, was struck by knuckles or gripped horribly tightly while the child's head was being slammed against a surface. And the final injury that was really key, and really I have to say the key in this case, were the three linear, that is vertical, up and down marks on the child's head in a bruising pattern that matched the skull fracture that were uneven. And what the medical examiner opined was that that is what caused the skull fracture from striking an uneven surface violently at least once. Three different fractures from one strike? One large fracture from what looked like three marks. So this is where the police evidence was important because they took a ton of photographs of that bedroom. Our working theory that the medical examiner agreed with was that Whitaker took Darius, who was probably crying because of the cold, he was probably uncomfortable upset, and slammed him against the doorframe, which if you know from molded doorframes are uneven and have multiple sort of levels of wood. And that was our theory, was that the child was slammed against a doorframe at least once. They didn't remove the doorframe and look for evidence on it? No. All Mm -hmm. they did was take pictures. Mm -hmm. So, of course, DNA didn't certainly didn't exist where I was as a prosecutor. It was very, very cutting edge in the late 90s. So nobody was thinking DNA in this small town in Georgia back in 1999, though, for sure. But so... That was key evidence, the medical examiner. But for me, sort of the emotional key evidence in this case was the EMTs. It was the first time in my career I'd really had EMTs come and testify in what I thought was so pivotal in the trial. The most important thing they said was, what was the atmosphere like in that house when they arrived? I mean, imagine you're caring for a 13-month-old, even if you don't know the 13-month-old, much less actually live 
and Love, the mother of that 13-month-old. They arrive, and there's people surrounding the child on the bed. But no one's doing anything. No one's holding the child. No one's cradling the child. No one's crying. No one's screaming to help Darius. None of that. Nobody would answer EMT questions. Whitaker never told the EMTs that the child had fallen. Mm. And they were the first to notice the lump on the back of the child's head. And he never told them that the child fell. The EMTs were emotional on the witness stand because they said that they had never been to the scene where a child was trying to be rescued, where no one seemed to give a damn about Darius. Mm. And that's one of the things that most haunts me about this case, is that when he died, no one gave a damn about Darius. Well, Francie, tell me that the jury was able to put this together. This was a great jury and emotional closing arguments on my part. I talked about Darius and all the things that he would never get to do and all the things that Shonda would never get to see him do and document. I thought about photographs, and that was sort of my theme in closing, was all the photographs that Shonda would take of Darius that Darius would not be in. Mm. And I went through all the milestones of a child's life up into prom. And it's really hard as a prosecutor to uh, evoke that emotion to make sure the jury cares about the victim while not getting emotional yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm an emotional person. And so it was a really fine line because if I start crying, the defense attorney is actually going to object and I might draw a mistrial. So I really have to try to be dispassionate and passionate at the same time and try to forget that Shonda is sitting in the courtroom crying, sobbing. This was the first jury I ever, and maybe the only jury I ever had that cried during Mm -hmm. my closing argument. Wow. And I had multiple jurors. So closing arguments are finished. The judge tells the jury to go back and deliberate. We know from experience, Jim, that it takes usually 15 minutes or so to elect a four-person, and then they deliberate. I went back to my office, which was only down the hall from the courtroom. Mm -hmm. This is a small jurisdiction, Albany. And 15 minutes to the minute I walked out of the courtroom, I get a call from the court that the jury is back. Wow. And I am freaking out. <laughs> 15 minutes isn't even enough time to elect a four-person normally. And so I am I literally run in my tottering high heels. <laughs> I run back down the marble hallway to the courtroom. And I'm just, my heart is pounding. I'm almost getting ready to have a heart attack because I'm convinced I'm losing. Yeah. And that Whitaker is going to go free after I know that evidence is overwhelming that Whitaker murdered in some kind of rage Darius Sweet. And we file in and we're sitting there, the jury files in, and it's just garbage what you see on TV. (laughs) All the stuff about, oh, if the jury looks at you or they don't look at you, here's what it means. It never means anything. And I'm sitting there and it's agony waiting for the jury to pass the note and for the courtroom deputy to read the verdict. And they convict him of everything. And I just slump in my seat. I'm so relieved. I cannot believe they reached a decision in a murder case like this in 15 minutes. Mm. And it was a very diverse jury. There was no assailing any part of this trial. He had a really good defense attorney. So I felt really confident that the verdict would stand. And I was just so emotional at the end of the case. I think this was the first time I went home and told my husband, I need to get out of town. I need to go somewhere where I can just sit on the sand and stare at the ocean and feel better because this was a tough case to live with. Really? I have to ask you, though, Francie, I mean, given circumstances and then given the result, is this a best case or a worst case for you? 
You know, I'm actually torn about that. I don't know. (laughs) I really can't say. I mean, it was a best case in the sense that I convicted a child murderer. And I am confident that Whitaker murdered Darius in a rage because Darius was sick and not feeling well. And the verdict stood. So I'm very proud of that. Whitaker is in prison for life. I'm proud of that. But the images of Darius on that autopsy table, and I kept that styrofoam skull with the markings from the medical examiner on it. Mm. They haunt me and I'll never forget it. And so in that sense, mourning for Darius and for Tarius and for Shonda makes it a worse case for me. Wow. Well, I know this is a case that's going to bother a lot of our listeners. So uh, if it's triggered anybody, please take care of yourself. Talk to somebody. Get help if you need it. Um, but this is unfortunately one of the darkest sides of what we did. When you work in law enforcement, unfortunately, you have to witness firsthand some of the worst things that humans do to other humans. And I know that you dedicated yourself to this career to help fight for the victims. And thank you for what you've gone through as a result of that, Francie. Thank you, Jim. Well, for now... We're signing off on this episode of Best Case, Worst Case. Thank you. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Knowledge is power, and when we know the facts about sexual abuse, we can better protect kids. Darkness to Light has already trained more than 1.4 million adults to keep children safe from sexual abuse. I'm one of those 1.4 million, Jim. Using their Stewards of Children Prevention Training, they give you and gave me the facts, tools, and tips I needed to help keep the kids I love safe. And you can do the same with their Stewards of Children Prevention Training. Get trained today to prevent, recognize, and react responsibly to child abuse in your community. Learn more about Darkness to Light and child sexual abuse prevention at www.d2l.org. That's D, the numeral 2, L.org. Oh,